What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Before forming Austin-based metal band The Sword, guitarist Kyle Shutt played in a ska band. Not only that, but he was such a fan of Blue Meanies that he joined their street team, and one time he drove across a few states to see them play. The Sword were a successful band, but in late October 2022, The Sword broke up after nearly two decades together. This is Kyle's first interview since their breakup, because he wanted to talk about ska. Let's hope that this signifies a new upbeat project for Kyle. Do you ever play Guitar Hero, Aaron? Uh, I played it just a little bit. I played a lot of Guitar Hero at one point in my life. And one of the songs that I really liked to play was Freya by The Sword. Uh Between that and uh, Aaron Nagel playing The Sword for me, I was super into that band. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea looking at those long-haired Heshers up on stage, that any of them would like ska. Yes, well, ska roots, they do find their way into un- un- unlikely places. Ska roots, everybody has them. <laughs> you just got to <laughs> dig deep enough. That's why we're here. You were good at Guitar Hero? I was okay. I wasn't that great. How similar is Guitar Hero to playing a guitar? So here's the thing. like, there's, I feel like... Guitar Hero for certain types of music is actually more difficult than playing guitar. <laughs> like legitimately. Like uh, White Zombie, the Thunderkiss 69 or whatever that song's called. That song is harder to play on Guitar Hero than it is to play on guitar. But The Sword? How hard is that one? I can't even remember. I just love that song. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, let's talk to Kyle now. All right. So the um the the sword broke up like um well like October twentieth right <laughs> I, I I guess uh, I haven't really been keeping track but very 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 recently yes yeah okay so it's uh, the it's uh, November fourth the day we're recording 
So my first question for you is, is this your first interview since the band broke up? Uh, yes, it is, technically. Um, I, I also run a podcast uh, called The Highway, which I have been uh, reticent to uh, roll out another episode of because I know everybody's probably wants my uh, opinion on the whole thing. But um, yeah, uh, it fucking sucks. And uh, I just have to figure out my life i've I've been just burying myself in work which is usually how i deal with uh, stress this is just like to put a message out there to all you non-ska bands if your band breaks up let's just come here <laughs> just come here and talk about ska with us yeah for a you while. can just come to talk about ska yeah i love waking up early in the morning talk about ska yeah you posted this photo on twitter uh with you uh at i think it was the blue meanies post wave release show <laughs> is that what that photo is uh, it, it may have been the release show i don't know exactly what the the occasion was but yeah i if you want this the quick version of the story is that a friend of mine ben hobrach uh, who we were roommates when i first moved to austin um in the early days of the internet we would just you know kind of hang out on message boards and stuff and we heard that uh one of our favorite bands blue meanies uh, were playing a free show in chicago um in the alley behind a store called the alley and it was uh, oh. Burning Airlines and Blue Meanies. And so, yeah, we, I think, spent like 35 bucks and got some Greyhound tickets and uh, took the 24-hour trip up to Chicago and, uh, yeah, made it to the show. It was a real, uh, like, Wayne's World kind of moment <laughs> for us. Who, who is it that's in the photo with you? Uh, that would have been Jimmy and uh, uh, the bass player. I'm, I'm spacing on his name right now. Now, I, I think you had said something before about you were part of their street team. Yeah, um, if if anybody out there remembers uh, what a street team is uh basically you would write to a band and you would just they would send you or their label would send you uh boxes of like promo cds of like the latest single or show flyers or uh just anything like that to promote uh, the tours and it would be your job to run around the town and put those posters and their cds or stickers or whatever up all over like local you know coffee shops record stores things like that. Tons of bands did it. Um, and uh, whenever Blue Meanies signed to, I think it was Capital uh, that the Postwave came on, um, Capital ended up sending me uh, tons of promo stuff and everything. And, and in exchange, you would be uh, put on their guest list. And to a 17-year-old kid, that really uh, means a lot. So that was... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't do it for too many bands, but um, I, some of the Asian man bands, they sent me some stuff. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun back in the day because I was a... I worked at a photocopy center too, so I could uh, copy as many flyers and, and things as I, I needed to. Yeah, those little hookups at those early jobs always end up paying off. Mm -hmm. what, do you remember what Asian man bands you did this for? Oof, this is a long time ago. Probably like ME330. Um, and, ooh, this is a long time ago. Maybe Lawrence Arms. They're not really ska, but I'd love that band. I mean, ska roots. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Okay, so um, so you're living in Austin. You're on the street team. Um, you get sent these flyers. What's your participation as a street team member? Um, you know, I just out back in the day, I would get on the city bus or hop on my bike and uh, go down to Waterloo Records. Um, record stores, maybe some of them still do. Uh, they used to have like a big table um, out or, or like a community board or something like that. And you could just like drop your band stickers or promo cds or just put the show flyers up things like that um plenty of like you know 
uh, telephone poles uh, downtown that we would, you know, staple uh, flyers to and stuff like that. Um, just, you know, the vandalism in, in the name of uh, promoting your favorite band. So how much would it, would it be like a full day's worth of going to different spots or was it just a one or two record stores and that was it? You're done. No, I mean, like Austin was like a live music town. So there was tons of clubs to to go around and, and, and put posters up at. Uh, there was Emo's um, all up and down Red River, uh, Room 710, um, tons of record stores, North and South. Um, it's very, very, or I guess it still is. But even back then, it was a really music centric town. So there was everyone was real supportive about you putting up your, you know, flyers and stuff like that. Now, when you went to see Blue Meanies in Chicago, um, how was the show? I, I can't, I don't, I don't think we really got into too much detail about the show itself. Yeah, um, it was funny. Uh, Burning Airlines blew the PA out. So it's just, like the show kind of stopped halfway through and then they had to like go get like a new, I think a, a new PA speaker or something like that. I remember there was like some technical difficulty for sure. And uh, I don't know, Blue Meanies were always one of those, like they were like a really terrifying band if you saw them like in a dark club especially after i think the first time i saw them um was it was like honor system lawrence arms so i think it was like a plea for peace thing so and and think just you know a bunch of kind of more lighthearted bands like link 80 played and stuff like that but then the blue meanies went on and they're just these mean looking dudes in suits you know there's just playing this like terrifying like uh, jazz metal almost i wouldn't even really call them a ska band necessarily yeah, i don't think they um, would either but they're ska core or whatever i don't know um but they were, I, I just remember you know that being just like really life-changing and then you, you you put a band like that you know outside at 3 p.m you know and it, <laughs> it's just it wasn't the most terrifying of shows but i did get to um to meet them and uh that meant a lot uh and all in a weird kind of tangent timeline thing um burning airlines who featured jay robbins from jawbox he ended up producing uh, the swords fourth album and then subsequently hmm. mixing like three more records for us uh, after that so it, it was kind of uh fun to hear that story from from his angle of, about what that show was like do you know did he explain what happened like why the sound system blew up was it? no i don't think i think it was just like a classic punk rock situation where it was just really haphazard <laughs> they had some somebody's shitty pa they were borrowing and then just yeah you know but nothing uh too uh, out of the ordinary did the sword ever have any shows like that oh yeah <laughs> so so many our, our very first show ever we played uh, on north loop in austin it's a vintage store now but it used to be a record store called sound on sound it was it was in march of 2004 and uh, we were really excited. Uh, everyone, all of us in the band were kind of like well-known within the Austin music scene anyway. So like uh, us forming a new band was kind of a thing people were excited about. So everybody showed up, but the band on before us blew out the PA. So instead of, there was, there was no saving that one. Uh, so instead of just not playing, we just played instrumental. And uh, I don't know, I bet it was pretty devastating uh, looking back on it. But uh, yeah, there's been so many so many shows where, where there's been egregious technical difficulties, but you just got to power through. You could be an asshole and you could, uh, you know, have an ego about it and blah, throw a fit or you could just, uh, you could just rock. It's a lot yeah. more cool when you just rock. Yeah. I mean, I think the cool thing with the sword is that y'all had great riffs. And so you, and everybody has an instrument. You don't have a singer that's just standalone. 
Mm-hmm. So you could just power through as an instrumental band. Yeah, and eventually, like at, toward the end of our career, we had we could have written an entire instrumental set just from the uh, amount of songs that we had. Yeah, no lyrics, but yeah, totally. Before you were in a like before you were a professional musician, this trip to Chicago was that the longest distance you'd ever made to go see a show? Absolutely. Yeah, it probably still is just to see a show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how many how many hours is that by bus? The I. I think it was like 21 hours on the way there and then 24 hours on the way back oh my god i, I mean it's even. not that far to chicago but you know greyhounds they stop at every podunk little town along the way yeah did you i mean you had your friend to sit next to did was, do you remember any weirdos on the bus ride not really because <laughs> like if you get off a greyhound then you're kind of allowed to get back on before anybody else right when it reboards so we kind of since we were on it for so long, we kind of had like free range of like whatever seat we wanted. So we, it was, it was pretty chill. Nice. The only time that ever got weird was, um, we stopped in Memphis, like after midnight and got off the bus and took a walk or like outside. We're like, Nope, never mind. We're good. We'll just <laughs> go back in the station. The Chicago Greyhound station was a fucking scene though. That was, uh, yeah, I'd never, uh, that was probably the biggest city that I'd been to by myself at that point or, you know, like without, my parents or whatever and uh yeah just seeing what the uh seeing how the the unhoused people uh get by out there it was very eye-opening yeah especially as a kid because you're 17 is that i i was yes i was 17 um i remember and i had a brief period of time in my 20s where I didn't have a car so that we did a few greyhound greyhound trips out of town and yeah like you're saying you stop a lot but it's weird because you stop in a lot of weird like places you don't even expect, like just towns you never heard of, and like the Greyhounds, like in a weird location, like behind the grocery store or something. It is a. It can be kind of fun, like if you've never done it before. I'm sure it gets really tiring after a while, though. I say it's it's a great motivator for you to save up for a car. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bougie compared to you guys. I was an Amtrak kid. I was always taking Amtrak everywhere. Oh, I've never I've never ridden the train before. I've always wanted to. Not in the states, at least. It's nice, yeah. but you get you get a similar amount of weirdos, and you're kind of stuck with them. <laughs> so, seventeen might seem like a really young age for uh, you to head out of state, but you'd already been you'd already toured by that point. Not necessarily, like just like kind of long. I, when I was fifteen, I joined this uh, uh, ska band that took me on some like long weekends of, of playing shows. I would say not not full on tours, you know, just you know three or four shows in New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, stuff like that. What, what was that band called? Uh, <laughs> you can't find it anywhere on the internet. Doesn't it matter. Was, uh, I know, but uh, I've looked, but it was a terrible name, but it's a perfect ska band name. Uh, 10 Betty Zane. Cause you had to have, you know, a number in your band name back in those yeah. days, but <laughs> it's actually, um, it, it's a real object. Uh, the, it was a, a 10 Betty Zane, a T I N. Um, the, the, it's a patent actually that's the the name of like the jiffy pop stovetop popcorn device oh yeah the the, the patent of that is, is the, the the device is called a tin betty zane nice that's a that's a good ska band name that's hardly the worst <laughs> ska band name <laughs> so you grew up in uh, middleton texas right uh midland actually midland um, i'm sorry midland texas where's that at that's west texas very West Texas. Uh, do you remember? I don't know how old you are, but do you remember uh, Baby Jessica uh, fell down the well? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that was me. 
I did that. No, <laughs> no but that's where uh, that is the town in, in which that occurred. And it's also uh, where Friday Night Lights right. uh, took place. And uh, that was a it was a real thing back then. It wasn't just a TV show. Nice. Well, I mean, were, you were living there as a kid when the baby Jessica thing happened. No, uh, the I, I was a baby. I think when that was going on. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, we didn't move there until I was about eight. Okay. So I think I'd read you. I'd heard you say before. You know that you didn't really get much in the way of touring music through town through your town like it was a town where pantera and those kind of bands came through basically yeah i I saw i got i did get to see pantera which is pretty cool i thought i was gonna die at the show i was like 14 i think um saw zz top a couple of times george thurgood came through but it wasn't like you know um uh, austin or or anything like that you know which is only five hours away but and there, you know, was, uh, Lubbock would get some big shows, which was about an hour and a half away. But I, I just, I didn't have a car. My parents, you know, I could barely talk them into taking me to go see, you know, the whoever uh, in Odessa, which was only about twenty minutes away. So it was, uh, you know, it was a rough going back in the day. Which is funny though, because um, now that I kind of like look back on it all, like the sword kind of falls halfway in between Pantera and ZZ Top, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of like the spectrum of Texas rock and roll. <laughs> so but you did get 10 10 betty zane came through town yeah there was like a youth center that a lot of like um uh, uh like christian uh, metal and, and punk bands would play and like uh, all the local diy bands and so like you know the the tooth and nail scene they would fucking play anywhere you know and um that was kind of i, I want to say like mxpx came through one time um ugh, i can't I, I, what was that been 90 pound 90 pound wuss, wuss, yeah or something yeah yeah they came through one time um but th- you just kind of had to go to whatever show you wanted to let like your you know that, that there you know what about that band training for utopia did they ever come through uh maybe i don't know <laughs> i mean they were they were the one band from that scene that i liked uh-huh. yeah they were good um, did the teen center have like a i mean they always give them like silly names like the cave or the out the underground no, this was just like a like it was just called the Midland Center, and it was just like a downtown event thing you could rent out. Gotcha. But it was relatively inexpensive. Did they ever try to do the guided like the prayer before the show? Uh, <laughs> no, no, um, I don't think so. Maybe I don't know. Might have been outside smoking cig. <laughs> nice. So when the sword was early, early touring, did you guys ever play any Christian teen centers and have to like? navigate the christian adults no but uh we did play a very a very famous um unitarian church in philadelphia yeah. uh, that we played many, many times um the, every band you've ever heard of has played there yeah first unitarian's cool though they don't they don't pull that thing no no um uh, no i can't think of any other churches that we would have played unless it was you know like a, a <laughs> What's the word for it? Decommissioned uh, worship center. Right. Uh, the, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> beautiful old church in like Colchester or something like that that you end up playing in the UK. Right. Yeah. And then it's been turned into just a venue. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So um, does that mean that 10 Betty Zane was a Christian ska band? Uh, yes. They, I mean, the, the, the guys were, you know what I mean? Oh. The, the music wasn't necessarily like um, God first <laughs> or whatever, but you know, th- they were older than me. They were like 20, 21. You know, and uh, good old wholesome 
boys and you know my, my mom you know saw their show it was basically like i saw them play um i thought their trombone players sucked and then i saw that they were playing a show in odessa the next week and i said hey you should give me your tape and i'll go home and learn all your songs and then you should let me play in your band next week and they were like all right you know <laughs> okay, why not so yeah i went and uh, went home and learned all the, i played trombone so i like learned all the songs and uh showed up to the show the next week my mom was there met the band uh we played the show went off great and then i was just in the band and then i kind of ruined that band for them because eventually the trombone player just quit and then it was just me and the trumpet player uh, as the horn section and then i started writing songs on guitar for the band like i wrote like two new songs and so i would show the guitar players how to play the songs and then i think they were like why is this 15 year old kid like writing my guitar parts now you know and there's <laughs> so one of the guitar players quit and so we went from like a like a nine piece to a seven piece real fast. And um, yeah, we, we tried to get on like festivals or, or things like that, you know, um, but just, it, it just didn't work. Like all the, the gigs we played were super DIY and um, yeah, it just, I, they didn't know what they were doing. And I was just happy to be in a van, like driving around, you know, in a band. So it, uh, it was fine. I think my parents were probably happy to have me out of the house for the weekends just cause I, that was a bit of a, disobedient turd but you know was the band based out of um where was the band based out of they were from hobbs new mexico and that's not that far from midland it was probably like oh i don't know like a two-hour drive or something like that my my dad would drive me to the state line and the band would pick me up and we would rehearse um some weekends unless we had like um, gigs in which case we would hit the road Okay, can you remember any of the songs? Like, can you throw some song titles at us? I really can't, honestly. Like, it's, I know I have the CD. I never played on their record. Um, hmm. And I, I do have a CD of that band somewhere, but you, I, I genuinely do not remember any of that shit. I bet if I heard it, it would be like, probably like, uh, like one of those, what is it? This is your life. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> I was trying. I was trying to think of their names too, like the the band members' names. Like I remember, Joby was the bass player. We had a, a girl drummer, Sherry. She was awesome. Michael was the singer, and I, I think Waylon was the trumpet player. And then Cody was the guitar player. Is that it? Is there any more? I don't remember. I think that's it. So I guess it was a six piece by the time we were done. And yeah, the band just kind of fizzled out. I don't know what happened. I think I quit. Actually, I think I got a girlfriend and was like, you know what? I, I think I like Converge, uh, you guys. I'm going to like, <laughs> let's stop playing trombone in a ska band. What is your, what's your trombone history? Were you like, were you in the school band? Yeah, it, it kind of, that's how it started. I wanted to be on the drum line, um, but for whatever reason, I got talked into playing the trombone. I, I don't even really remember. And I remember like signing up for it but then like the week before school started i was like what the hell did i sign up for why am i playing trombone this is so weird um but it turns out i was very good at it and um i i, I don't know i could just music just makes sense to me you know so I, i'm really good at playing by ear and so that's kind of like where like i would learn the bare minimum of like how to read the music and then i would just memorize it all and just play it you know like not really like paying attention to the, the sheet music necessarily which uh, still happens i'm i'm very bad at um, reading music but that's fine i just you know it's not cool man i just <laughs> want to rock i don't want to read 
Now, one time you opened for uh, Zebrahead in Lubbock, Texas. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure it was Zebrahead and Lit. Oh. Um, before, like, they were had a song or anything. I think it was like 98, maybe 90, 97, 98. What do you remember about that show? Uh, it was at a weird coffee house. I'm almost positive. It was in Lubbock. Um, and yeah, it was a lot of all that, that was kind of like back in the day when you want to yeah. play all ages venues, you couldn't like, you know, play, play the, the punk club, you played the coffee house and, um, that might still be a thing. I don't know. But, um, I don't, I, it was so long ago, man. I was 15. I'm 40 now. Um, I might've been 16, but yeah, I just, I loved playing shows. It was just, I, I don't know. Like I, I never get stage fright, anything like that. You know, I'm just, I was born to fucking pop up there and, and, and do my thing. But, um, like, I think my, my favorite band at the time was real big fish and they had opened for real big fish. So I think I was, I think I was just really happy to be like two degrees away from <laughs> real big fish. I was like, I'm on the right path. I'm doing something right here. Yeah. I thought I read that there was zero people at the zebra head show. Maybe, but, but there wouldn't really be zero people. If there was, if there was zebra head and lit there, there'd be all those members, but besides the members, oh, zero paying customers. Yeah. Who cares? Oh, I could see that. You know? Yeah. I mean, there was a big room at the time. I remember. Yeah. It just, I don't know. That was a long time ago. Um, I was just happy that that there was a show that, some, that I had something to do. Like Midland was so fucking boring. I would have like gladly yeah. played to no one. And when you're 15, 16, I do remember there care. being very few people there. I think we wore capes. I think I had like made us <laughs> capes out of like some weird sheet, you know, or I don't know. I was, I was really excitable. <laughs> I love, I love the idea of a young ska band all wearing capes. No, it was just me and the, and the trumpet player. Oh, just the horn oh. section. The rest of the band could fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> I think they were specifically like, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> you guys go ahead though. <laughs> okay. So you moved to Austin. When did you move to Austin? Yeah. I would, uh, I would go on these little tours or whatever, you know, weekend shows and come back to high school and be like, wow, y'all this, like th- none of this shit matters. I have to get out of here. There's a whole world out there, you know? And so I dumped my, a school program down to like the remedial level and just got my the took the test and got the hell out of there um and so i moved to austin 10 days after i turned 17 um that would have been in may of 2000 okay and uh yeah i kind of and joined uh or I, I my parents were very adamant about me going to school and i was did not take it seriously at all. I, I did really poorly in school anyway, so I don't know why. I, I just was like, yeah, yeah, I'll go to school. Yeah, sure. So I signed up for fucking the community college program. And then uh, just I think I went to school for like two weeks. But then I was living in a co-op, you know, in uh, in West Campus area where like they had like clothing optional hours, <laughs> you know, and shit like that. So I was like, I'd rather just hang out with naked chicks and smoke weed by the pool and, and play guitar uh, than go learn french you know at, at a school so yeah i I went for about two weeks before i just kind of i don't even think i dropped out i think i just let it ride and then so i think my gpa is officially like zero point <laughs> zero like uh like john belushi and animal house but whatever man it's cool it shit doesn't matter totally um now you you were inspired to move to austin specifically f- because of the dead milkman 
kind of yeah in a way there were uh, two sort of twofold uh, dead milkman had that song uh, six days um where the, each i guess verse of the song is about or each line is about a different city that they would tour through and about how much they hated all those cities but the last line of the song is about uh when they got to austin and how great it was and how they wanted to stay and how rent was cheap and everything i was like oh that's cool you know austin huh and then also, uh, like I said, I was really into, I, I listened to everything. I like all kinds of music, but um, a friend of mine gave me a, a Converge CD. And, and through that, I found out about Equal Vision Records. And in the early days of the internet, um, eventually found RoboDog Records, which turned into Robotic Empire. But at the time, they had like all these wild bands like Page 99 and uh, Circle of Dead Children. And this band from Austin called Employer Employee. And uh, I was like, wow, okay, so there's bands in Austin doing this kind of shit. And, like, you don't have to be on MTV to to tour around in a van. So I, it was like kind of all, all the pieces were coming together in my head. And I was like, I'm moving to Austin. I'm going to just not take no for an answer and uh, just go to every show, meet everybody I can, and just take over the world with my rock and roll. And that was sort of my goal. What, when you first moved to, to Austin, what was your favorite venue? emos always hell yeah. uh yeah the first show i went and saw there was uh oh i think it was bouncing souls and dwarves it was fucking sick and that was on the outside stage i'm guessing yeah it wasn't um technically it wasn't outside yet it was they hadn't knocked that wall down so it was it was a sweat box man it was miserable in there but it was uh it was, <laughs> so like i didn't really know about dwarves i liked them um mm-hmm. but I, I didn't know about their reputation live Right. And uh, so I wormed my way up to the front row, you know, and it oh, was an all ages venue. And so, but I didn't know that he who cannot be named would come out naked uh, with nothing but a the luchador mask on. And then, so I, you know, I could see every wrinkle in his nutsack, <laughs> you know, and then like after about three songs, once I was just kind of kept getting hit in the face with the you know, dick sweat and I was like, okay, okay, okay. I, I'm, I'm going to the back. This is okay. Yeah. great show though it was great but technically he exposed himself to a minor um but sure yeah yeah but uh, whatever i mean i didn't care i mean i feel like that was a, a like oh, late 90s early 2000s staple though like maybe fucking dudes getting <laughs> naked at shows at all ages shows yeah propaganda did it a lot yeah uh-huh. does that happen anymore is that is that a thing god i hope not i know <laughs> <laughs> it's like the last thing i wanted to show I was gonna say, uh, is, is propaganda like are they enemies of the show because of Scott sucks or I don't think so. I don't think they're enemies. I mean, I've, I've oh, okay. spoken to Chris before <laughs> in a, in a message. We've, we've been pleasant. So, Oh, good. They're, they're wonderful people. Blue meanies were an important band for you, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every era of it too. I, I, I kind of went deep on the, the eBay kind of rabbit hole and got every single old seven inch and uh, compilation and cd bp thing like every little outer print trinket that i could find um i got and i because of that too i got really into like other bands you know like captured by robots who have now evolved into this crazy grind metal thing that still plays yeah. in austin sometimes it's pretty wild um but uh yeah everything that all those uh people did uh bitchy um all their side projects everything all of it loved that band can you recall uh, just when you discovered them did you discover them through ska um no you know what it was i, I think uh, a friend of mine uh, drew williams he had an older brother who had moved to austin like two or three years before the rest of us to go to college 
and he got a job at the college radio station and he would just bring home stacks of CDs of stuff that he thought that we would like. And in one of those stacks was a copy of kiss your ass goodbye. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't that one. Did, I mean, I, I really enjoyed some of the songs on that one. That, that album as a whole didn't necessarily wow me at first, but, um, knowing about them, I wouldn't got a copy or I think I uh, mail ordered a uh, full throttle. And that was the one that really like, that was like, wow, this shit is insane. You know? And, um, that, that from there on, I kind of like got into the rest of the stuff. Yeah. I think there's an interesting, you, you talked before about how they got lumped into ska, but they're really more like jazz metal, you know, I think would be close. You'd, you'd say would be more of a cl- better description of the band. Totally. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I, it, they, they were just their own thing. There was nobody, you couldn't be like, you couldn't sound like them without ripping them off. Yeah. The sword. I've read like several interviews where the subject of what your specific subgenre comes up. And it seems to be an odd point of contention, both within the scene and with the, with you guys. I, I'd love to get your take. So the, the general consensus is that it's like either doom metal or stoner metal. W- what is your take on that whole thing? Yeah. I mean, well, it, it was it was really important for us early on to not be pigeonholed as like a weed band because there was a scene of of fucking just weed bands you know like like Bongzilla, yeah. uh, uh, sleep you know um had, had dope smoker you know what I mean it was like n- none of our songs were about weed like that was kind of to us it was like you know Electric Wizard Dope Throne you know what I mean like we we didn't write songs about drugs it was we were this. Kind of, we we weren't like fantasy metal, you know. I mean, I, I guess you could have, but it was just so much like it was to 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 describe and, and and stuff that we just wanted to be a rock band. Like we played like rocked out metal songs or metaled up rock songs, and so we really didn't in an attempt to not get pigeonholed because once people make up their mind about you, there's no changing it. Um, so we tried to squash that early on. So it, in in a weird way, when we first dropped, like people didn't know what to call us, so they called us hipster metal. And like hipster was kind of like a new, it was like a new term at the time. Um, and we're like, what? Like, what the fuck is hipster metal? And they're like, you know, people that are like ironically playing this like metal music. You're like, we're like, this ain't ironic, man. This is the baddest shit we've fucking ever heard, man. And like new metal was king at the time too. So like everything had to have a label. People didn't know what to call us. We were like, you know, on, on MTV and like radio stations with, you know, sounding completely different than everything else that was going on. People just didn't know what to call us. And so many, many terms went around. Doom wasn't even a thing back in those days. Like that wasn't like, like Doom was reserved for bands like um, Burning Witch or Candlemas, like real Doom, Doom and Gloom bands, you know? Um, And it eventually just sort of like, they started calling us girlfriend metal because we were the one metal (laughs) band that your girlfriend would like. Uh, we got called fucking everything. It was just absurd, and it was just we're it's like just boyfriend jeans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we're just a fucking rock band. Um, but people they have to put you in a box to to feel right about it. It used to bother me a little bit more than it does, just because it just I don't know. It just turned into a joke where it's just like, what are they going to call us this year? You know, and um, but but you know, Doom. Whenever that whole like. The Doom is a very specific subgenre of yeah of metal, you know. And so, you guys don't play slow enough to be Doom. No, not at all. And um and so now that it, now it's just been co opted and everything is called Doom. That's why when I started my um uh, Pink Floyd heavy metal 
laser band, Doom Side of the Moon. Uh, I, I called it that because of the Easy Star All Stars reggae version, Dub Side of the Moon. Mm-hmm, I was like, mm-hmm. well, I'll just call it fucking Doom Side of the Moon. And it kind of like the idea of that came from when I was going to do a solo album, which I eventually did. But um, when I was thinking about it, I was like, at the time, the sword had put out a record, uh, High Country, that was pretty polarizing. And I was like, thinking about doing a solo album that would really not sound like the sword. And I was like, man, I got real high one day. I was like, man, nobody wants to fucking like solo album for me. They should, I should just start a Pink Floyd cover band called Doom Side of the Moon and y'all fucking eat it up. And I was like, well, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> and so I got my guitar out and then I, I made Doom Side of the Moon. So that's, uh, and, and then by the time I put that record out, it hit number, I think it was 82 on the Billboard Top 200 charts um, as a completely independent release. And so Sick. Doom Side of the Moon is hands down the furthest I've ever taken a joke. <laughs> uh, Do- Doom Side of the Moon. Um, I like, I like it. One of the things I like about Doom Side of the Moon is that it, um, like if you, when you first hear the concept, you assume it's going to be all in on every moment. It's going to be very metal sounding, but that's not how you approach it. You, you approach each song with um, kind of what it needs and what it wants and what feels right to the dynamics of the given moment of the song. I agree. Yeah. It was the, the way that I kind of put it. Well, I, I guess number one, like you can't go fucking around with Pink Floyd. That you, then you're just messing with people's emotions at that point. And, you know, you, you got to really tread lightly when, when you want to reimagine something as the legendary as that. Um, but I also, you know, I wanted to put my own spin on it. And I noticed that, like, nobody had ever done, like, a heavy metal version of it before. Like, the Government Mule and, like, Dream Theater had, like, covered it, you know? But, like, that was just a really faithful, you know, recreation. I wanted to like, really shake it up. So my thought process was, like, what if Black Sabbath was the band that wrote and recorded those songs instead of Pink Floyd? So that was kind of where I that was my jumping off point. Yeah, and you, and uh, the atmospheric sounds that you bring in, do you really emphasize that in certain songs, which I think is an interesting aspect of both certain certain subgenres of metal, but also what was the source material? Like the source material had a lot of atmospheric sounds that was part of mm-hmm. the album yeah uh when it, i don't know if you're familiar with uh many when many bands begin the recording process you'll make like a chart you know of like all the songs like like a like a look like a graph like you know all the song titles yeah. uh, along up the the columns and then the rows are all like the um instruments necessary and so i i specifically wanted there to be a, um, a column of just ambience uh and and to think about that for each song, not that I had to have it, but you know, I wanted to like leave room for that um, in each of those songs. And yeah, I had a lot of fun um, creating a lot of my own samples and stuff like that, especially like the, when you first play the record, um, all those sounds that you hear kind of swirling around, there was a metal shop next door. So I took a zoom mic in there and um, had the, the dude, the metal shop worker, like turn on all the machines and use them. And I recorded like every different, like weird industrial thing I could get my hands on. That's rad. Um, do you know if it, if you play it along with a uh, wizard of Oz, does it sync up? <laughs> it does. It, it really does in a weird way, man. Sick. When I was trying to roll out the promo for that, I called up our local uh, weekly paper, the Austin Chronicle. And mm-hmm. um, they assigned one of their music writers to do a little piece on it. And he was like, why don't you just come over to my house and we'll smoke weed and listen to it and uh, try to see if it syncs up with the Wizard of Oz. And I was like, that is a genius idea. Let's do it. 
and man it syncs up in some of the weirdest fucking ways um it was a little scary honestly at times but uh it was, it was fun especially when like when great gig in the sky is going on when the tornado is going and then like whenever yeah. my guitar solo um comes in and out during like the lollipop guild doing like weird ballerina dances it all syncs up like perfectly it's it's weird it's really weird i love that i mean i'm i'm a straight edge guy but i've with my friends done the like dark side of the moon uh, oh yeah pink floyd thing completely stone cold sober it still works. It's so fun. Absolutely. So I'm definitely going to try that with yours. Now, Adam, you've done it with dub side of the moon. I too. haven't. I got to try that too. Yeah. Maybe I got to make like a whole week of it. <laughs> so we got, yeah, I think it's interesting that like dark side of the moon is like this, um, legendary, you know, album, sacred, whatever, but dub side of the moon is awesome. Like I, I remember when I heard about dub side of the moon, when it came out, I was like, it sounded like too gimmicky to me. But, you know, then they, they, it turns out that it's it's all like legit, real, like reggae yeah. musicians. Great album. And they're, you know, they're not they're not approaching it like a gimmick per se. They're approaching it like, you know, reggae in reggae. They, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. It's part of reggae culture to create reggae versions of existing mm-hmm. songs. So it's really not a stretch whatsoever. So it actually sounds really cool. And then your record listening to your record it's like it sounds cool too because i don't know it's like it is like this idea that like of covering like sacred material like like a lot of times with sacred material is actually really good fodder because it's so familiar to people to just hear different interpretations of it yeah our live show went off too man like it's uh, it was it was like i said earlier like i never get nervous or stage fright or anything like that i that's true when it comes to my own bands the only time I ever get nervous is when I'm about to take the stage and do the whole Pink Floyd show because it's not my music. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, it was a real different feeling than I thought. And then, like, by the time we get to Wish You Were Here, which we do like a crazy metal version of it, it's fucking awesome. It sounds like Foo Fighters or something. Um, it's <laughs> like it it hits people hard. You can tell like, those songs run deep in our culture and, and uh, in our DNA at this point. Yeah. So one of the things that I find to be very different between ska and metal. And we kind of touched on this a little bit within ska. It's like everything's ska, you know, like blue meanies ska. Right. And maybe we, we might, we might get into a conversation of distinguishing between ska core, traditional ska. I mean, there's like four or five labels we can throw on. Right. Sure. Metal. Now we get into the nitty gritty of distinguishing the subgenres of metal. Like there are hundreds of metal subgenres. Oh, please! Yeah, I, I made a meme like a long time ago that was um, uh, Forrest Gump and Bubba like on the floor, uh, cleaning the, the floor of the barracks with toothbrushes, and Bubba's going, "There's power metal, <laughs> and thrash metal, and speed metal, death metal." Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just I just went on and on with it. It was fun. I uh, I, I went to a website and I got I printed out a list of some metal subgenres. So let's, let's read some of them. And if you have any any comments on any of these, please just pipe in. Just <laughs> okay. Heavy metal, speed metal, thrash metal, power metal. Okay, now we have death metal, but there's all all basic all basic metals here. Yeah. So we have three subgenres of death metal. Okay. We have melodic death metal, yes, my favorite, technical death metal, and brutal death metal. Uh huh. Okay. Yep. That checks out. You're fine with that. Okay. 
Next, we have Slam Death Metal. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Any idea what that is? Yeah, it's more like uh, I, I would I would think that it would be like the more like electronic forward. Um, but then then technically, see, this is where we're talking about the difference between stoner and not stoner or whatever. Your death metal band, your lyrics have to be about death or, you know, the putrefaction, some sort of yeah um, thing about things being dead. So that's the kind of underlying current there. Okay. Now we have um, we have black metal, but there's let's see six subgenres of black oh, metal. Lord, <laughs> let's go through them. First wave <laughs> of black metal, or otherwise known as blackened thrash metal. Yep. Uh, true Norwegian black metal. Okay. Depressive suicidal black metal. God. <laughs> <laughs> Symphonic black metal. Depressive suicidal black metal. You know, the, the people that well, I learned this from somebody that the people that kill themselves aren't the people that talk about it all yeah. the time. You know what I mean? If you're going to do it, you usually just do it, you know, so singing about uh, whatever. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> We got oh post black metal. I'm, I'm very curious what post black metal is. Huh. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll have to look that one up. And then uh, atmospheric black metal. Yeah. Okay. I get behind yeah. that. Well, you know, there's. there's I mean, there's isn't black metal already sort of atmospheric to begin with? Uh, no. No. Uh, no. Technically, it just depends on the kind. I mean, black metal is supposed to be, you know, really lo-fi. Um. Uh, unmastered if you can get it that way you know um just very bare bones um black metal has to it's like the the lyrical content is not as uh you know death centric or whatever like that but you can think about a band you know like a blood incantation they're 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 more of like the technical death metal kind of thing but you they also kind of tread the line of that atmospheric black metal where some of their like their latest record was completely ambient you know, from, from the same band, you know, so like it's, it's, it's interesting the way that they're sort of trying to just um, commandeer so like so many genres that they just become blood incantation as their own thing. Like they are their right. own genre. You know what I mean? And I, I like bands like that. Kind of how Queen is just Queen. They can play anything they want, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I, I typically gravitate toward more bands that, that, that straddle genres rather than like commit to one fully. But, but then you got a band like Carcass, you know, who have um, been just pure melodic death metal, like um, for this whole time, you know, and and just evolving in in that one genre. So I don't know. It's just, God, metal's so dumb. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> let's get it. Speaking of, let's get into the next two. Okay, pagan metal and Viking metal. I always thought that we were like uh, like a pagan metal band. You know, we sing a lot about pagan stuff. Um, and it's the it, yeah you know like the the maiden mother and crone the uh three witches we made up a lot of our own lore i mean that was all jd uh his his vision and, and stuff like that but it's still um yeah i i i, I always kind of thought that we were more in that what would you say is the difference between pagan metal and viking metal uh well you know viking metal um i would say that you know you got your your amana marth you know it's very viking metal is like real uh theatrical in a sense where like, you know, you probably will have swords or, or battle axes or, or armor on the stage <laughs> or something like that. You know, um, pagan metal would be more 
uh, ritual oriented, I would suppose, you know, like, um, you get a band like Watain, which is like, you know, really brutal death metal, but they're very ritualistic in the way that they present themselves. It's, I think it's disgusting, but you know, they're, that's just, uh, yeah, to each their own. You know what I mean? Folk metal. Yeah. I like me some folk metal. What, what does folk metal sound like? Is it literally folk? instrumentation um well i guess you could think about it that way that'd be cool i think about it more like um uh you get a, have you ever heard of a band called hammers of misfortune over uh, you could say is another great folk metal band they're they're pretty minimal but um yeah it's uh, these are we're splitting hairs here at this point <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the whole case yeah, though right yeah, yeah. um Symphonic metal, I get, I get yeah, that one. Easy. Um, gothic metal, glam metal. Yeah, is glam metal is is that totally out of fashion at this point? No, not if you do it right. What about hair metal? I mean, in terms of new new bands and new audience. Oh, there's got to be new hair metal bands. I mean, Steel Steel Panther is just destroying it lately. You know? Oh yeah, Steel. Well, but th- that's like it's um, kind of a shtick. Satirical. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, I mean, I would way rather take that over somebody that a real glam band that's taking themselves seriously. Um, yeah, sure. So no, like, no. You, well, if you want to like go that far, then you got bands like, what are they called? Murder Dolls or whatever, where it's like you almost kind of have to be from Hollywood and you have to be like that L.A. fucking ding dong that thinks <laughs> doing that kind of shit's cool. You know, we've, mm-hmm. I don't know, like I'm to each their own man but like if the more like time you spend on like your clothes and like the bracelets you're wearing and like the little dangly i it's just like what are you even fucking doing play guitar yeah for real a good song or if you're good, you have to be very you have to have really fucking good songs if you spend that much time on everything else absolutely under doom metal we got funeral doom metal and stoner doom metal Okay, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, fu- I guess, you, I've never heard of a funeral doom metal. So fu- funeral doom, I guess, would be like your more traditional, like what doom just used to be all around, like um, Burning Way. Oh, okay. Uh, I still, that, that album Crippled Lucifer is still, I think, like the pinnacle of what doom is. We got groove metal, okay, industrial metal, modern metal. I don't know what I mean by that. Modern metal. Um, I like that. They're calling it, like, these days they're sort of calling it the new wave of American heavy metal. Um, which is bands like Lamb of God, um, uh, just modern metal, like you know, God forbid. Um, it, typically, what what we'd normally call like butt rock, you know, I guess, you know, like your Nickelbacks and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're, sure. they're not really new metal. They're not, you know, um, pop. You know, um, yeah. What's your let's 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 take a side tangent. What's your take on Nickelback? Um, I've heard a lot of stories about Chad from, you know, like direct stories about just what an awful person he is. Um, mm. But I, uh, time and a place, you know, if you're like in a strip club and they're like blasting Nickelback, you're like, oh, you know, what, this ain't that bad. <laughs> you know, but if I'm like, you know, uh, eating, like making a sandwich in my house, I just turn that shit off. You know what I mean? Um, I do. I know of one story that, did happen um it was when the with chad is his name the singer uh he was yep. married to, to avril lavigne for a while and then so she 
Like Live Nation bought one of her tours, and I might get some of these numbers a little bit wrong, but this is they're they're not that far off. Like I, I swear it was like they they wanted to give her like twenty million dollars for her whole tour, and there was a stipulation in her contract that said like if she got sick or whatever, like this one specific little clause then she would get to keep the money and then not have to play the shows. And so she magically got laryngitis, uh, canceled the whole tour and kept the 20 million. And I just know that like he had something to do with that. I just feel it in my bones, you know? So I don't know. I feel like the guy's a fucking weasel and they're not married anymore. So maybe that, you know, tells you something Mm. like that. Nickelback. Whatever. All right, let's, let's, let's kind of skim a few more of these, um, pirate metal. Yeah. That's not a thing. Come on. Yeah, it is. Is that a thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a thing, Adam. Oh, my God. I mean, there's only like <laughs> one band, but yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a thing. <laughs> one band making the whole genre. Is that one of the things? The beauty of metal is that you can just invent a style sure. and have it apply to your band exclusively? Yeah, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> um, math metal. Yeah, okay. Grindcore, we got okay, gore grind, uh huh, death grind, yep, power violence, and then there's one that's called um, my favorite power violence, porn grind, porn grind, slash shit grind, yeah, shit grind, yeah. I, I, wow, I can't believe that's a real thing. I made that up like 15 years ago. I, I made a fake band called Shitty Butt that uh we recorded uh, or i mean i recorded it all by myself but i i wrote a whole like band history there was a while where i wanted to ha- start a record label um that only put out fake bands but like as, as reissues you know what i mean so like and, and then we would write in the liner notes like write the whole band history and everything and it's just oh this is like way before hard times started doing bullshit like that and everything um i clearly didn't take it too far but yeah shitty butt so shit grind is a real thing now huh all right wow the shitty butt is your fake band. Uh huh. S S H I T T I B U T T. So no music. <laughs> it's on my uh, <laughs> Patreon. If you like, go way way deep down there. You can read the whole story and listen to the shitty fucking demo I made. Actually, um, uh, one of the songs on there ended up. Uh, I redid it as the the theme song for my podcast. So you know, it, it wasn't. Every time I try to make a joke, I end up taking it too seriously, and like I was like, well, I can't make something suck on purpose. You know, and so it ended up being a lot of fun. But uh, I mean, yeah, joke's I way better if it's done well. I know, I know, it was fun. Yeah, shitty, but uh, our album was called "Cream of the Crap." <laughs> <laughs> Great name. What was your musical inspiration for these demos? Um, just uh, I used to be in a band called Bloody Murder Weapon, and that was kind of like uh, when I first moved to Austin. I was like, I need to make a grindcore EP now. You know, like I, I need something to to put on these tables next to all this other shit. And then like, so, you know, I'll make a name for myself somehow, you know, and, um, wrote and recorded, I think seven songs in four minutes, uh, of an EP. And then, uh, kind of handed that out. And because of that, um, that made the rounds and I ended up in a band called kids in service to Satan. And then when that band fizzled out, I like in that band that I was telling you about employer employee, when they broke up, they had already sort of known about, my other bands and then they brought me in and we started a band together and so yeah it was it all kind of happened real fast but that was all just kind of coming from the 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 grind scene of like bands like spaz or um uh the circle of dead children um converge 
you know, botch, uh, just bands like that that were just uh, I had a lot of noise to make, and I was really a, I was an angry kid, um, and so that was kind of where where that idea came from. But then once I was wanting to do shitty, but you know, I don't even remember like where that fucking idea came from. I was I was just like oh, this band sucks. They sound like a shitty butt. <laughs> and uh yeah was just, i think that it's something like that that's kind of how it started somewhere down the line <laughs> <laughs> you did a uh you did a few songs uh i think it was 2020 for the project dirty restaurant of death yeah that um that was my me and my daughter's little project uh that we did um she was 3 at the time and uh yeah the pandemic was full swing and uh she she was my friend uh, her her mother decided to up and leave me and they have uh they all live in phoenix right now um unfortunately i i miss my kids every day um i i get to see them as often as i i can and i'm getting there for christmas yay but um yeah me and her would sit around and just be idiots um and write songs and we wrote this one song called dinosaur and i thought i was like oh, this is actually like really catchy um, and then, so, uh, I recorded it and then we did it and I was like, all right, we got a band baby. And I was like, it's gotta be Kyle shut and like the band, you know, or whatever. So I was like, what do you want? What do you want your band to be called? And she goes, dirty restaurant of death. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I'm like what? She's like, dirty restaurant of death. Get out of here. And I was like, what the fuck? And like, from what I could put together, I was like, one of our daddy daughter things that we used to love to do was to go. Uh, to this pizza place in, in Austin called Home Slice. And uh, we would, you know, I would get a couple beers and some pizza. She would get pizza, run around and play. And it was, we had a great time. I got to miss her. Um, but uh, having to explain to her why we couldn't do that anymore during the early days of the pandemic, you know, I was just like, sorry, baby. This is like, you know, the restaurants are real. They're dirty places where like lots of germs have the potential to be. So we can't go there right now. Cause like, you know, a lot of people are dying out in the world and we're trying to make sure. So in her head, she was just like dirty restaurant of death. Oh, wow. And uh, so I let her have it. That was, that was her, her choice for the band title. So yeah, that was, <laughs> and then I ended up pressing it to a seven inch. So you can buy on my band campaign. <laughs> Yeah, the second song is called Poop. Yeah, and and uh, I was because I was like, well, we got to write a seven inch, babe. Uh, what, what's the B side going to be? <laughs> like, what do you want to write about? And she goes, Poop. I was like, No, I'm not going to write a song <laughs> about poop. No, let's we, pick anything else you want. What what, what do you want to write about? And she's like, Poop. And so she wouldn't fucking let it go. She her artistic uh, vision would not be compromised. And so I wrote a song about how I want to write a song about anything else, but all she ever wants to sing about is poop. And that's how that song came to be. Yeah. Incredible. The, the cover. So tell me about the cover. Uh, yeah, actually it was just, um, a guy named Drizza, a tattooer from, uh, I believe he's from Tampa, maybe St. Pete. What's up, Driz? Um, yeah, I just let him run wild. I let, I have a, a saying, let the artist art. And, um, just, I like to tell an artist like, Hey, I've got this song about dinosaurs and there's also some poop in there, but it's like with my kids. So it would be cool if it was like, you know, tongue in cheek and lighthearted, you know, and he drew a dinosaur taking a massive shit. Uh, uh, and there, yeah. there, there it is. You can't unsee it. So when you showed the cover to your daughter, 
what did she say? Oh, she lost her mind. Uh, I did a, I did it up as a black and white thing too. So like the in the inserts of the seven inch are like a coloring book, you know, so you could color your own thing. So and uh, I I signed a bunch of them and she colored them and that was sort of like the the deluxe pre order edition that you could get. It's a little little a little shift here. Um, I was reading in our interview and you were talking about how um, the Sword were one of the first bands to do uh, alcohol beverage branding. Mm-hmm. I'm just uh, fascinated. I don't really know much about this topic, but I'm just curious about it. Oh, I mean, uh, what what, by, what did you do? And yeah, we were by no yeah. means the first band to ever have their own beer. But I mean, like we were uh, of all like the popular metal bands at the time. Um, we were really at the forefront of doing a lot of uh, atypical merch items, and that was one of the ways that uh, we really stood out. Um, we, I, I've always been a kind of a fixture in the the Austin beer scene. Uh, just because I'm an alcoholic, but also, um, was, you know, when, when, when I first moved to Austin, there was, uh, three places that brewed their own beer. There was the B side downtown, which burned down. And then there was, uh, the draft house, uh, them, you know, what that, oh, and then there was Lovejoy's downtown, which you couldn't taste the beer because you could smoke inside. So I don't, people would be like, is there beer any good? I'd be like, I don't know. It just tastes like cigarettes. Um, but, uh, the draft house. Uh, was just a, it was a great beer bar before Austin became like fucking beer town, and um, I would hang out there. I hung out there every day for like ten years, um, and uh, you could meet you know bookies, lawyers, drug dealers, doctors, like whatever. It was just everybody hung out there, and I got to know so many fucking people all over. And because of that, like it, it was a, a really well known like beer destination for people traveling uh, in from other places. And uh, it was, you know, they had like 85 taps where everywhere, everywhere else in town had like five taps and they were all Miller Lite. Um, and so I just I'm not really as into beer as much now as I was then. But at one point I was like really, really into fucking beer before before it was craft beer. It was just beer, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I ended up uh, becoming really good friends with a guy named Eric Ogershock, um, who was the head brewer for Real Ale Brewing Company out here. and. The, they were kind of out in the hill country, but uh, they still kind of claim Austin as home. And uh, yeah, we just talked about we should do a collaboration. We should, you know, uh, make a beer and then we'll have a release show for it and this and that because you're always having like beer festivals and you do collaborate with like a cheese company or some shit. I don't know. You know, like why not do a fucking metal band? And they convinced their company, which was, you know, a high volume brewery. I mean, like, I. I, th- I think they ran like 3000 cases of that shit. Uh, the first run and we sold, I mean, it was, we, they had, you know, d- giant displays of it in every grocery store in Austin. And it was, I mean, it was a real thing, you know, like this, the first, first run of sword beer. Um, so was, this, was it just called sword beer? No, no, it was, uh, it was called iron swan after a song off of our first record. Uh-huh. And um, it was, we, we made it after one of my favorite beers uh, in the UK called spitfire. Uh, that you just can't get in the states, and so it was my attempt at making a hoppy ESB, uh, and yeah, it, it went off. But then, like the next, like that summer, all of a sudden, you know, Iron Maiden's got their beard that they're rolling out now, and like you know, Motorhead's got one, and it's but they didn't even make it; they just went to Cooper's and like got their fucking you know label slapped on a can. And I was like, that's not even you're just like branding yourself, you know. But then, like then, like to take that a step further, like we started doing things like where if we used an artist on this record, 
that look like this. The next thing you know, Mastodon's doing the same thing, you know, with like that. So you could tell that like way bigger bands than us had their eyes on us and would just steal our ideas because they didn't, their ideas weren't as cool. And I have no, I have, I think that with no ego at all. I'm just, just the fucking truth. Like seriously, um, with, uh, shadow, uh, the, uh, the bike company, uh, we did a, a sword branded BMX bike. It was fucking sick. Fucking three months later, Slayer's got one. You know, it's there's that's there's that's not a coincidence. So yeah, I I, I do take a lot of pride in because I, I had a heavy hand in and a lot of that um, marketing and uh, merchandise manufacturing um, for the band uh, during that time. Yeah, I think like the idea, especially when you're you're not like a like the big band in the scene. The idea of doing collaborations with company like involves a lot of elbow grease and a lot of creativity. And I like the idea of like if you're involved with the actual creative process, not just slapping your name on it, like you're talking about. Whereas like when you're a bigger band, when you're a huge celebrity that like suddenly wants to own a jewelry line or a makeup line, you know that they're not like down there like trying to come up with the perfect whatever. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not involved, they're just putting their name on it. Yeah. And to me, that just seems, that just seems dumb. Yep. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna create, if you're gonna put your name on something, you should be involved with the creative process of creating it. Mm-hmm. That's why, I like, uh, you know, like Les Claypool uh, with Primus, you know, he's got his own purple pachyderm, uh, you know, winery, you know, and they they make actually very good wine. Um, but he he's down there, like you know, putting his hands in the dirt. Mm-hmm. So other than like you said that. Uh, creative approach to merch so aside from these sort of collaborations what are what are some of your uh, creative approaches to merch that you've had over the years i've got a bunch in my back pocket that i haven't rolled out yet that i'm really excited about but over the years um you know one of the, one of the first ones we ever did and I, I did steal this idea um from murder city devils but uh you know when you go to the the store like a uh, 7-eleven and you buy a beer and they put it in a paper bag Mm-hmm. You know, so like I just I, I went to a Murder City Devils uh, at the drive-in show and um, Murder City had like those beer bags, but with their stamp on them, like their logo stamped on it. And I was like, that's fucking genius. So like the, the <laughs> when, like a couple of years later when the sword was going pretty strong and then I, uh, I, we were going to play at Emo's during South by Southwest. Um, I was like, fuck giving out CDs, fuck giving out this. I was like, I'm just going to go buy a bunch of beer bags and make I, I worked at a photocopy kind of print center so i made a rubber stamp uh with our logo on it and i just stamped like a thousand beer bags and i just left them all over the venue like at every bar and it was it became a thing where i realized that like i was like man nobody's like using them everyone just like stuck them in their back pocket and i was like oh god damn it like they, it's, the point was that everybody's supposed to have their beers in them so i think i made more like the second show that we did and i just put those out and so like enough for everybody to like have to you know and then yeah eventually it, it caught on and i think um I think like Chuck Klosterman like wrote about it in Spin. I think that yeah, I mean it worked. I, I we got some press out of it for sure. Uh, for such like a cheap, <laughs> you know, free thing for fans to have. People love free shit. Yeah. Um. Oh, what else did we do? But, you know, we had one. Uh, it was a what would you call it? Like a phantom merch item that uh, we. So we used to have this tour manager named Ben Adams. What's up, Ben? Uh, and he was in, he, he, he kind of came from the Chicago kind of Scott punk scene. I'm not going to name his band cause he would murder me. 
uh, if I did. But um, he. Uh, but you should though. I should. It was, it was called Manic <laughs> Sewing Circle. Sorry, Ben. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't bad. They weren't bad. Um, but hey, the, that's uh, a cool name. Yeah, it was, it was, honestly, it's not not a bad band either. It it it, it, uh, it evokes an interesting image. <laughs> but um, he he was asleep all the time. We used to call him Sleeping Ass Ben. And uh, I was like, "What's up, Sleeping Ass?" And uh, we so we had our graphic design team like behind the scenes create uh, what we called the Sleeping Ass Ben package, and it was like a sword snuggie and pillowcase and like i i cover you know whatever ipad um a uh every, anything jokey and dumb you could imagine like little pajama socks or whatever we just had it mocked up on a on a in an image you know what i mean and it looked real it looked like something you could fucking pre-order right now and then we're like so what we'll do is we'll we'll accidentally have him copied on an email where we're sending it around so it seems like we're trying to do it behind his back and we're about to roll it out you know and then so we did it so then we like sent the email and we're kind of just sitting in the dressing room and he just busts in the door he goes dudes what the fuck is this oh my god are you fucking serious is this a, is this a real thing oh my god dude we got we have to get this blah 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 blah, blah. And we're like we we're just he you know it, it kind of backfired because he thought it, it was funny we just wanted to get on his nerves but um so then we were like well should we Let's just post it on Facebook with no caption. Let's just post this picture, you know? And dude, it got like half a million views in the first hour or something, you know? <laughs> and people were straight up like, Where's where do I buy this? You know, this so then we're like, Shit, man. I mean, God, are we are we really gonna make this? Is this like a thing? You know, it just kinda was a joke that it quickly got out of hand. And then uh, people at the at the merch table every day on that tour just come up. I want the Snuggie. Where's the Snuggie? Where's the Snuggie? And then so we're like, all right, I guess we're making Snuggies, you know? And so we looked into it. And uh, the minimum order for Snuggies back in those days was 5,000. Oh, my God. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not ordering 5,000 Snuggies. No. I mean, I know you're all saying that you want it. But the second that I actually make it, you're not going to buy it. You just you want it because you can't have it. And right. uh, so we we never pulled the trigger uh i think for the better but yeah that was the early days of um yeah clever marketing for, for us um i don't know there were there was so much we did so many beers um over, over the years we we did these amazing beer steins like real deal german official like beer steins um skateboards i mean you know all the typical merch that other bands do um but yeah that was that was that was, yeah. that was a wild ride. I, I I truly enjoy marketing and um, merchandising things like was that. Was there was there any merch item that was awful to tour with? <laughs> like uh, beer signs. If you tried to take those, and I feel like no, be... we we never took those on the road. Yeah, um, yeah. That our our fulfillment center uh, at Indie Merch they would handle all the, all the that kind of stuff. Uh, no, we were pretty we were smart about um what we took on the road and, and things yeah. like that and we didn't want you know because like trucker hats are cool but the boxes are huge you know and like you can only fit like a hundred of them in that big box whereas you know there's other things that come in smaller boxes that you can sell for the same price and then just not have your trailer like completely full of merch which i was guilty of keeping our trailer entirely full of merch at all times yeah i like making money man yeah, yeah i mean it's it's yeah. better than being out of stuff yes it is yeah, I remember when I saw um saw, saw the toasters like six or seven years ago. Hadn't seen them in a while. 
and they had their own line of hot sauce on the merch booth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, oh, that's cool. And I asked Bucket, I was like, what's up with the hot sauce? He's like, oh, nobody's buying CDs. So, you know, we sell we sell more hot sauce than albums. Oh, yeah. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess, you know, someone's going to, someone, maybe they maybe they love the band, but they don't really want to own CDs. But uh, they, they'll see the hot sauce and they'll be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. I got to have that. Yeah. We weren't the first band to ever have a hot sauce, but we we definitely like made it popular in the metal scene um, just because like it, it, it was kind of an accident. Like we just did it as kind of a joke because we had a song called Tears of Fire and our record label guy at the time, Jeff K, um, he was like, what if we did a hot sauce called Tears of Fire and it's really hot and like, but we, you know, we didn't want to just slap a label on something. So we found a guy in Austin and like made a, you know, really nice delicious hot sauce which just uh he just retired and retired the recipe uh around the same time that the sword decided to well one of us decided to hang up the hat and um that's uh yeah that's where the the hot sauce idea came from but it was uh it was it, it, we ended up on um the travel channel like on no reservations with anthony bourdain uh, eating oysters with our hot sauce and so we basically just got like a free commercial for our fucking hot sauce on the travel channel and uh yeah online sales for that just went through the roof it was it was awesome it was i can't believe like we had a hot sauce in production for like over a decade (laughs) what was it like uh what was it like hanging out with anthony bourdain Uh, he was awesome he was uh, a very very kind man um you uh you get the impression that he talks a lot just because he narrates his own show i guess you know but he actually um he really listened to what you had to say and he, he cared about what you had to say. And, um, the, the world needs more people like him, not less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like Anthony a lot. And, um, like he, I think like, like there's a certain layer where he carried himself where it was like, I'm the badass chef who travels the world. But just under that layer was like, I think the, the guy who was very curious about the world and I remember watching this one episode in like, um, I can't remember somewhere in the, somewhere like a Latin country, kind of in the Caribbean area. It might, maybe it was Puerto Rico or maybe it was something different, but, um, he was like hanging out with these people in there. And then one of them was like, ah, oh, you're, you're actually like, I just thought you were gonna be super arrogant and come in here and just tell us all this stuff about, you know, like a know-it-all. And he's like, I don't know anything, you know? <laughs> I just assume you guys know, and I want to hear what you have to say. And I was like, yeah, I appreciate that attitude. Yeah. I think that if you watch his shows, you can see that's actually how he approached it. He was a very, very genuine person. Um, like he, you know, he was reached out to us cause he wasn't like a fan of the band necessarily, but he knew that like of all the bands that he could talk to in town, that we were like definitely the uh, contenders. And then, you know, listened to the places that we wanted to go. I took him to the draft house to have some beers, uh, took him to eat some oysters afterwards at our favorite little fish market. Uh, he wanted to hang out like where bands hang out. You know, he didn't want to go to like some fucking fancy plants place or whatever like that. And then the next night we were actually playing the very last show at emos ever, uh, the old one. And, mm-hmm. uh, it was, uh, Fiddler back when they were first starting out, uh, cage, the elephant, the sword, Jimmy cliff, uh, and uh yeah and and he came out to the show and it was fucking awesome sweet guy real sweet guy nice 
So yeah, I think you were our first metal musician to be on In Defense of Ska. Mm-hmm. Um, is am I right, Adam? I think so. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of people from the punk scene, you know. I think it's becoming more and more evident to me. I think I was already aware of this, but it was more and more evident that like through the years, the punk, emo, hardcore, and ska scenes have overlapped pretty significantly. Yeah. But I always feel like metal is a little bit on its own scene and doesn't cross pollinate with those scenes quite as much. What's your take on that? That's a really good question or or statement. I I suppose that's, um, used to, used, hmm. So like y- y'all remember the nineties, like everything was like super elitist. It was like not yeah. cool to like things, you know? And, um, it, I think that did a whole generation of music fans a disservice. Um, because now it's, everyone likes everything, but metal. Yeah. It was kind of like vilified for a long time and rightfully so. A lot of the people that listened to, you know, the mainstream metal in the late nineties were a bunch of you know, troglodytes, you know, just, just, just cave people. Um, and you know, it was a very uh, aggressive, very, uh, not very inclusive kind of music for a very specific kind of misfit that just wanted to go beat the shit out of other people, like-minded people in, in the pit. And like, it wasn't really, it wasn't communal at all from, from an outsider's point of view. And, uh, I think over the years it, it's gotten more friendly and stuff like that, but also like the, you know, the, like you said, there's only five or six kinds of ska or whatever. You know, there's like three kinds of emo. Uh, you know, there's 500 kinds of metal. And so like within that <laughs> realm, you know, it's sort of like for as, for, for as more people that came into that fold, there became more subgenres of them there for, for them to, to sort of gravitate toward and things like that. Now you have festivals like, you know, Psycho Las Vegas that has, you know, bands like rotting christ and carcass but they also have you know dwarves and bone thugs and harmony and it's all it's 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 slowly starting to kind of like creep out and, and just not be about a bunch of fat white dudes with beards anymore you know it, it's a lot more inclusive than it used to be but it's it's taken a lot longer than like the, anything from the punk or hardcore or emo ska scenes like that yeah i was gonna say and you kind of meant you kind of already am, am, intimated this but i was going to say metal metal sort of being a little bit on its own island maybe that's why it it created so many subgenres because rather than coexisting with other styles of music it's created other styles of music within itself yeah. so yeah that's 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 interesting um how where do you feel like do you feel like you like looking on the metal landscape do you feel like does some of the metal scene feel like it doesn't even feel like you're seen at all? Does it, does it, is it that disparate? Like all these different subgenres, or is it just like, we're all metal? I don't know. I'm a punk at heart. Honestly, like if I'm putting music on these days, it's, it's going to be the nerves or, uh, no means no who's could do mm-hmm. things like that. You know, um, I love Prince, Madonna, the cure. Um, I really haven't listened. I mean, when the sword first started out, you know, I was, we were all really into, you know, like, you know, bands like Metallica, Slayer, Sabbath, um, things like that. But just over the years, you know, just like being on tour all the time, constantly having like that kind of music shoved down your throat and stuff like it's just it can get kind of eye rolling after a while. Yeah. Um, especially when people take it really seriously. I'm, I'm usually not a fan of people that take themselves too seriously. Um, so 
you know, it's something that I, I guess I've always struggled with is whenever I put out some like solo output, a lot of my fan base wants to, to be like sword part two or something like that. And it's just not who I am, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not, if I did it, it's going to be because it's because I want to do it. I'm not just going to like sit there and, and, and make an album just to please a bunch of people, even though it might, you know, uh, make me some money it's i do really enjoy making money but also it's just it's never the point of it all you know i I really enjoy creating art that is is true to myself and that will eventually find its you know its people um that's why i've been painting a lot lately Uh, i don't know if you've seen any of my silly self-portrait sort of things that i do but yeah it's uh um painting and, and, and podcasting is stuff that like i never ever thought i would do i've always considered myself a guitar player but the older i get and then the harder it is to be a musician these days um for a living you know it's i don't know i've, I've found myself branching out into other sort of art forms and so it's yeah i don't know it's weird so yeah within is, is it is it metal to paint yourself as corella deville i don't know <laughs> You know, maybe it's metal as fuck. You know, I I just don't even care anymore. It's you know, I'm just I'm just me, and you know, pe- people seem to to get that at this point. Maybe five years ago it was a little bit harder of a sell, but you know, I, I think people know at this point. So, um, since this is your first podcast since the band broke up, you don't have to say anything. Or if you want to say anything about the breakup, you're welcome to before we end. Uh, no, you know, I'm gonna make a statement on my own. Uh, show about it i'm sure people are waiting um i it was it was a pretty devastating situation for me personally uh, as half sure. my life basically um behind me now uh as like i said i'm 40 now i'm started the band when i was 20 uh with jd and um i i don't know yet man uh i'm i'm because you know but the, the nature of my show is i try to be as jovial as possible uh while also kind of talking some light shit on some other things and so um perhaps uh uh i'll I'll have an episode soon you know i I had a few interviews already like in the can that i just i don't know like that i felt like weren't really up to snuff and then it just the the show itself kind of got bogged down and i was we were i was trying to write some new sword material for a new record and that's just where a lot of my focus was you know and now that that bandwidth is completely freed up in my brain um Mm -hmm. that it's going to take me a little time to to focus and and figure out what to invest my energy fully in you know so i didn't want to just like put out a bunch of shitty interviews or podcasts or whatever just just to have content out there i i I really wanted to take a step back and just allow myself to breathe and then um i also like have bills to pay so i had to get like three jobs um but that's just what i was so like this my friend mike weeby from riverboat gamblers he always says uh i play music for a living so that means i am a bartender uh yeah so yeah so that's what i do now yeah i mean it, it takes when these sort of things happen it takes time to process i think people expect uh statements immediately but it takes time to process how you feel about it and all that yeah we already went through the hiatus you know thing like um uh, a few years ago and like coming off the heels of that, I really felt like we were back, you know, and it was, it felt really great. So this is a really unexpected blow and I have no fucking plans. Like 
anytime soon to do anything yeah i just need because before it was like i just hit the ground running with my solo album and with doom side of the moon and all this other shit and this now it's like i i need to really regroup mm-hmm. definitely that's why i want to talk about uh you know I, I will leave you with this thing though just to kind of tie up the whole blue meanies saga because they were a very important band to me um and in uh go like like i said going down the path of like podcasting or like painting or doing other art forms that i'm not necessarily known for a good friend of mine jt haversat uh, who is a fantastic uh comic in town he um he puts together these groups of musicians and he calls it road stories live where we would all get together and it really kind of like inspired me to take the direction that i took on, on, on my podcast um and uh so it'd be a bunch of us just dudes and bands not not doing stand-up comedy or anything like that, just getting up there and telling funny road stories. And uh, it really kind of like, he he f- basically like pushed me on stage and made me do it. And it turns out I'm like halfway decent at it. And so it um, became a thing that we started to do regularly. And then he wanted to take it on the road. And so he got a group of us, I think it was um, Dave from uh, the Casualties. And then... Um, uh, Mike Weeby from Riverboat Gamblers and me and uh, our friend Dirty Charlie, we all got in a in a car and uh, did a handful of dates. And uh, we also we eventually played Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is where uh, Bill from the Blue Meanies lives. And uh, he had been friends with JT from uh, his days in New York as a radio, like college radio DJ. And uh, and uh, Bill ended up inviting us over for dinner and uh, got to go to his house and have some delicious bratwurst. And punish him with stories about how I used to be on the street team when I was 17. And <laughs> he was the kindest man. He has a wonderful family and a beautiful home. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the difference between the Blue Meanies on stage and the Blue Meanies off stage. I, you know, I've only talked to uh, Bill since I've been older. But even when I was younger, they were, they were very, very kind to me um that when i as a 17 18 year old whatever you know and um there i was at enough of their shows to where they they would recognize me you know as one of the regulars but i I could also tell that they had very distinct personalities off stage you know and like i Mm -hmm. I could tell like you know bill always sold the merch he Mm -hmm. would go from the stage to the merch table and then sell that shit all night long and uh their you know trumpet player always seemed a little more snarky you know and their their guitar players was seemed just happy to be there sean he he follows me on twitter now he, he seems like he's a real sweet guy yeah um but uh mm-hmm. Chaz also he seemed like he uh he had a bit of an attitude i don't know in a good way i don't mean that in a negative way <laughs> you know uh but it was just that was you know that's kind of like what a band like that sounds like is when like this however many six seven like very different personalities get together you end up with music that sounds like that Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash in defense of ska 
You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.